Welcome to the podcast of the preaching ministry of LifePoint Church, led by Pastor Lane Harrison. We pray this ministry is a blessing for your life. For more information about LifePoint, please visit lifepointozark.com. For more information and resources from Pastor Lane, please visit mlaneharrison.com. Well, let's go to the Word this morning. We're going to look at seven seals and Revelation chapter 6 and 7. I date myself a little bit with this opening illustration, but actually I'm going to do it a couple of times this morning. Do any of you remember the scary movies of the 80s? It doesn't matter what the characters were, what the setting was. There always came a point in these movies when the boogeyman was about to get them. And they're off in some cabin in the middle of remotest nowhere. And they're running from him. And there is a car that is already running with the doors open on the street, headed out. All they have to do is jump in and take off. And they all go, but wait, no! Let's go hide in the tool shack. And they inevitably go into the tool shack and there are sharp, glistening tools hanging. Who owns this many tools? I don't know. But they always run into the shack and looking at it going, oh my goodness. And there they meet their demise. It happened every time. The actors were the absolute stupidest people ever in the world. And I know it was by the script, but that's the way they all ended in the 80s. You say, what in the world does that have to do with us studying Revelation? Well, I've given you a couple of warnings. I offer another one today. In our Revelation study, let us be careful that we do not run so far and so deep into the imagery and the details that we miss the clear point of the promise of Christ that is set before us. That's what I want us to see. The hope of God's mercy and grace and the hope of His love for us in his revealing these things to us. And I hope and pray these messages provide just that for you. Today I want you to see this, that Jesus is sovereign, who executes judgment for sin, but seals for eternal salvation those who trust in him. Now I don't have time to read all of the text for the amount of text we're going to cover today. Some of it I will refer to, and I'll do my best to let you know what verses I'm working through, and then some of it I will read for our purposes. Let's go to chapter 6, verse 1, and let's see how Jesus, who is sovereign, controls judgment in the world. Chapter 6, verse 1 opens, we see we, uh, the first four seals of the scroll at the end of chapter 5 now are going to be opened. And with each of the seals opened, we see one of the four horsemen set before us. It is the Lamb who was around the throne, who was worthy to take the scroll from the right hand of the one who was on the throne, who is now opening the seals And God's judgment is revealed to us. That's what we're seeing throughout this whole chapter is the judgment of God. The first seal reveals to us and it represents conquest or war and destruction in general. There is some debate on this writer. I'll come back to that in just a few moments. But behind the first seal, we see a white horse, and the rider has a bow, and the rider is given a crown, and they come out to conquer and are conquering. 
the color, the white horse, and the adornment of the crown makes this either Christ or a representation of Christ, maybe the preaching of the gospel in the world, or one who is at least masquerading as Christ, who's working to deceive and to conquer believers. By the color of the robe and the or the of the horse rather and the adornment, we know this. Now we we see uh, some would say and argue that well the white horse always represents Christ because towards the end he will come out on a white horse. But we will also see in our study that the one who deceives will ride a white horse as well in the purpose of deceiving. You say, well, how could it be a representation of Christ? Well, we do know from Matthew chapter 24, verse 14, that even when the day of wrath comes, and or before leading up to, rather, the day of wrath, as the judgments are carrying forth, the, the gospel of Jesus Christ will continue to be preached until the time has been fulfilled. And so these could be simultaneously to other judgments. So there's really two options. Is this a representation of Christ? Or is this one who is masquerading as a representation of Christ? Honestly, I can't say with absolute certainty. Because the scholars don't say with absolute certainty. And do not confuse me as a scholar in saying that. But I have at least read some of them. Not all of them. My personal inkling is maybe with one degree to the representation of Christ I lean in simply saying that I do believe that in the midst of the judgment prior to the day of God's wrath, the gospel will continue to be preached, and this very likely could be that representation. I'll argue these a little bit more in just a moment, try to bring a little more clarity to that, but before we do that, let's go to the other seals and see the other horsemen of the apocalypse. The second seal represents bloodshed and violence. Behind that seal we see when it is opened a bright red horse and the rider is given a great sword and permitted to take peace from the earth. And there we see that people slay one another. So this horrific bloodshed and violence now begins to spread across the earth. The third seal, verse 5 and 6, we see economic inflation and devastation begin to set in. A black horse is acknowledged and its rider is holding a pair of scales. Scales in the scriptures represent a system of measurement for economic transaction, if you will. So a weight of wheat or barley would equal a certain weight of silver or whatever the, the uh, commerce uh, uh, basis of commerce would be. But what we see in these verses is not just the economic inflation, but how in fact it carries out because... Prices are rising so much that the day's wages will scarcely buy a day's provision. And so we see this gross imbalance of provision and transaction that's occurring here. And, and what's brought out to us is some scholars even say that, that the costs were rising 15 and 20 times the cost of normal, but to where, a, a, but to where a, a, a worker in what they would make in a day couldn't even supply for the needs of that day. That's the tension that's being pointed out here. But then we hear a voice from among the four living creatures, and that voice cries out with a limit 
upon what the inflation will be able to do. Verse 6 tells us a quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius. In other words, that's the cap. Can't cost any more than this. That's what that voice is declaring. And then that voice says, and do not harm the oil and the wine. So there is a voice that comes from the throne of heaven that limits how high the inflation can go. It will not precede that. In other words, they will be able to sustain a day's provisions with a day's wage, essentially is what that is saying. However, when the war and the bloodshed and the violence move through, they can take the fruit of the crops, so the oil and the wine, but they cannot devastate the roots, the vines, because that would provide devastation for a longer period of time, most agree. So there is a limit on how much devastation can come to the land in the third seal. In the fourth seal, we're introduced to a pale horse whose rider's name is Death and closely followed by one called Hades, verses 7 and verse 8. They are given a fourth of the earth and they are able to kill in four ways by the sword, by famine, and pestilence, and by wild beasts. And so essentially we see here that a fourth of the earth's whole inhabitants are wiped out by this rider on the pale horse. But what are these four seals and the four horsemen of what are affectionately or are commonly known now as the four horsemen of the apocalypse? What are they revealing to us? Well, G.K. Beale tells us that the first four seals show how Jesus' authority extends even over our suffering that is sent from the hand of God, both to purify the saints and to punish unbelievers. Verses 1 through 8 are intended to show that Christ rules over such apparently a chaotic world and that suffering will not occur indiscriminately or by chance. The destructive events that are brought about by Christ, they're brought about both for redemptive purposes and for judicial purposes. But nonetheless, Christ is the one who is on the throne. He controls all the trials, and he controls all the persecutions, even of the church. I told you the last two weeks, the one most important thing that you must not, you cannot do in studying Revelation is forget the centrality of chapters 4 and 5 and the image and the revelation of Jesus the Lamb taking the scroll and remaining on the throne at all times. No matter what happens, this should be the central image of all of our understanding in all of these things. Friends, I want us to see today five eternal truths. Truths that hold us by hope in Jesus, even in the midst of God's judgment that we are seeing here. In time judgment, yes. But truths that hold Christians, even in the midst of these times. And here in these first eight verses, I want to set forth the first truth. Truth number one is this God's wrath is poured out against unbelief, but Christ, who is enthroned, sovereignly rules over all. Christ, who is enthroned, sovereignly rules over all. 
what has now become known as the four horsemen of the apocalypse, these judgments that we see throughout are forces that are operative throughout history. And they serve God's sovereign purpose. And they usher in a set of events of the end of the age that run simultaneously throughout history rather than just one final moment, one after another in severest of trials right before Christ returns. Seals 1 through 4 reveal the plan of God's will carried out in judgment against sin. But this we know, Christ is in sovereign control. The lamb is in control. How do we know this? Well, first of all, because he's the one opening the seals. Each of the first four seals is accompanied by what? Come. Come. You want to see what the future is going to be like? You want to see what the end times are going to be like? I'll show them to you because I'm the only one that can. I'm the only one that knows. There's an invitation here. Jesus isn't wringing his hands going, cover your heads. Run to the, to the hallways. Go hide. He's not anxiously fretting over what may happen. He's inviting John. He's extending an invitation to behold. Why? Because what occurs only happens because he ordains it. Now why do I pause here? Because we are told, and I have no reason to doubt, surely I believe, one of the greatest reasons that people do not believe in Christ to become a Christian is the problem of evil and suffering in the world. And friends, when we're focused on humanity as the central figure of all reality, I get that. That makes sense. But when Christ is at the center, when Christ is enthroned, we begin to understand what Genesis 3 is really all about, what Romans 3 in the sinfulness of every person is really all about, and how it is that the righteousness and the holiness and the justice of God have been absolutely profaned in every way. And when I say that he ordains these things, I simply mean that they are sent forth to accomplish his sovereign will. But it's not like he's left the building while it all takes place. As a matter of fact, I want you to see in this first truth that God is intimately engaged in the things that are going on. He's not afraid of what is transpiring, friends. He's at work in each of the seals. In each of the verses, verse 2 and verse 4, verse 8, and even down in verse 11, we will see that God is at work in each seal. There's a clue by what is called from scholars the divine passive verb. In other words, there is an action that is occurring on each of the writers that is not by the writer themselves, but it is occurring upon them. It's the passive verb. They're actually in it, but the action is being done on them. And in this verb, we're seeing the hand of God being carried out. I make this argument centrally in the first seal for why I think it could be the representation of Christ in the preaching of the gospel. Because without the gospel, who knows whether they'll be judged? 
It's the law of God that sets the standard. It's the preaching of the gospel. And listen, before we get to the good news of Christ's death for us, we've got to understand our damnable state before God without Christ. The problem is not that people don't like Jesus. We hear that all the time. I like Jesus. It's the church I can't stand. But listen, friends, if you don't like the church, you don't like Jesus. We're his. We're imperfect. We are not about us, but we are his, and he will not deny us. We are dead in our sins and in our trespasses. And when that first rider comes out on a white horse, he's given a crown. There is no woe associated with him. There is nothing that is evil that transpires from him. And so I wonder, though I can't say with great conclusion, and quite frankly, it doesn't change the prospect whether or not it's one masquerading to conquer or if it's the gospel being preached. But we're revealing God's activity. In the second one, verse 4, look what happens. The bright red horse, its rider, was permitted, again, the divine passive the, the writer was allowed to do something by someone who is not named but we know is operating in this passage. Was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people would slay one another and was given a great sword. God is executing judgment against the unrighteousness and the wickedness of the world upon those who have rejected him. Verse 8. Death and Hades were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and famine and pestilence and by wild beasts. You see, God is active in this world, friends. God is the one who judges sin. And he alone is the one who carries out the vindication for the righteousness of his name. For the horses and the riders are God's instruments and weapons that he is choosing but it is God. Do not be confused. God is the one who executes judgment. And God alone. We need to understand God's wrath and how it is that he executes judgment. Romans chapter 1 verse 18, Paul states, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. You see, friends, God's wrath revealed is best understood as his mercy removed. His mercy being removed. That's what Paul goes on to tell us in the following verses. That, that God removed his mercy and he gave them over to the darkness of their mind. And if you continue to read, that they indulged in every kind of immorality imaginable and even what was beyond imagination so that the darkness of their mind led to the depravity of their very souls. That's what it looks like to have no mercy from God. For his mercy to be removed, there's no goodness, there's no light, it's all dark. And God gives people completely over to unrighteousness and to wickedness. That's what we're seeing here. For a right understanding of God's wrath and judgment magnifies for us the greatness of God's mercy to us. 
We don't have to go, well, we know God loves, so we, we've got to make light in some way of the, the hardness and the harshness of his judgment. Absolutely not, friends. It says to us, how merciful is our God to save us from this. Even the smallest measure of his goodness is better than his mercy completely removed. We must be sure that we never neglect the mercy of God that has saved us not only from all sin but from our very selves, friends. And that we believe that his forbearance of sin, in other words, that he's immediately not annihilating, which is what so many think of when they think of judgment, that lightning bolt strikes and we're out. You know, you hear that kind of a reference. That his forbearance of sin does not mean ever that he is in any way passive towards it. He forbears because he is patient in love and mercy. His patience demonstrates, or excuse me, his forbearance demonstrates his patience to us. And though it will not last forever, we know his mercy remains today. So the question becomes, what are you doing with the mercy of God? Are you seeing the greatness? Are you diminishing it as not that big of a deal? Have you recognized the great mercy? Have you responded in faith to his mercy by receiving forgiveness and cleansing of sin by faith in Jesus Christ? This is the right response. This is the way we live in this first truth that we see. When I introduced this series several months ago, I did so with two aspects about Jesus' second coming that we must hold and that the study of Revelation must simply charge our lives with. One was urgency and the other was priority. Now by urgency, I, I do not mean to infer anxiety or anxiousness whatsoever, but rather urgency to mean this, that what is revealed in the text matters not just one day when, but matters now for the way we live today. What you learn today shouldn't just prepare your storage for one day when. It should influence the way you walk out of here today and the way you live when you go home with your family and the way you get up and go to work tomorrow morning and every day subsequently after. There must be an urgency about our lives that says we cannot negate, we cannot neglect the very mercy of God that remains for today because we don't know how many more days it will remain. We take every opportunity to share our hope in Jesus the King. Why? Because there's an urgency. Today is the day of salvation. You don't know what tomorrow holds. You don't know what the afternoon holds. But you know you have today. What will you do with the mercy of God? The second is priority. That first, in all and at all times, our doctrinal convictions center how we live by faith and obedience to Jesus because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And friends, in a day and time when people go, doctrine only divides, it really doesn't matter. I'm going to tell you, that's one of the first indications of false teaching right there. You don't know how to live your life if you don't have doctrine from the scriptures. Doctrine discerns, friends, 
And there are, as the Scriptures promise, many false teachers who have gone out into the world. And let me tell you how they operate. Because false teachers aren't the people who are speaking so or in such a manner that you go, oh my goodness, I mean, even the blind could see this, even the deaf could hear that. It's so obvious. That's not the way false teachers work. You see, false teachers take enough of a nugget of truth and they hook you with it. And then they deceive you by it. They say things that make you think, oh, they must be a Christian. But by the time they walk it out, they've walked away so far from the law of God and from his holy word that they're nowhere near him. Except for they say, well, we still love God. Well, quite frankly, your love for God is not that important. It's God's love for you. And that's what you walked away from. That's why Paul says to a young Timothy that false teachers will hook you with the nugget of truth, but they will deceive you with the doctrine they espouse. They go into worldly ideologies and philosophies that entertain everything other than the only one who is enthroned above. And then they walk you right away from faithfulness to Jesus Christ. And do you know why they deceive other people? Because they themselves are deceived. In that same way. They think that just talking about the love of God is sufficient. But the love in which they speak has nothing to do of the God to whom they refer. Urgency and priority. They should characterize the life of a Christ follower because our hope is consumed by God's eternal plan that is revealed to us in the text And one of the greatest ways that we magnify and exalt the mercy and the grace of God is by giving full attention to the revelation of God in His Word. So with these in mind, let's consider all else that's revealed during God's judgment. Look at verses 9 through 11. I'm going to read these verses for us. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the Word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Verse 11, then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. The fifth seal reveals to us the sacrificial slain of the faith. They are known by two things, their fidelity to God's word and their faithfulness in witness to his name. But most of all, I want you to see where it is that they are found. Where it is they are found. The sacrificial slain, in other words, those who have already died and gone before us, are found under the altar of heaven. Under the altar of heaven. Which altar is this? Well, I would argue that it is the altar of incense. Prayers being risen. And look to this. They cry out to God in verse 10. O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth. You see, their cry to God is not to seek revenge or even vengeance for their own name. But they are pleading with God for the justice of the righteousness righteousness and holiness of his name. And for that to be made known. They want God's name vindicated. That was the very reason that their lives were taken in the first place. 
And so this is their appeal because they want to see the holiness and the righteousness of God vindicated as an assurance for their very souls. As an assurance for their very souls. And what does he do for them? But he robes them in white of purity. And he told them to rest a little longer while the full number of those being gathered in is completed. You see, the white robe declares that their cry has been heard. Their prayer will be answered and satisfied. And that God and his saints will be vindicated even as they rest for now in God's sovereign will. Here's the second truth I want you to see today, friends. That the saints who've gone before declare that Jesus is worthy of our perseverance in faithful obedience and in faithful witness. The saints who have gone before us, who followed the Lord all the way into death, regardless of how that death came about, they testify to us that Jesus is worthy of our being, of our persevering, of our remaining faithful even to the very end of our life or the end of days. You see, his vision includes more than only literal martyrs, but rather it's a reference to all saints that have gone before us, not just those who died as a martyr. And the altar under which they stand is is not the altar of sacrifice. Listen, the altar of sacrifice in heaven has been satisfied, friends. That was satisfied on the cross of Jesus Christ. There will not be another sacrifice for sin. He is the sacrifice for sin. He is the atonement and the propitiation. If you're not washed in the blood of Jesus, there won't ever be another blood shed that will offer any hope for you before God. But this altar is one of incense. And look at what God acknowledges. It is the sacrifice that they persevered through. These are the saints who were slain sacrificially. They held faithful to God to the very end. And their prayers now are rising to God from underneath the altar. And he is receiving them as a pleasing aroma because he is acknowledging their sacrifice they made. And he is declaring that he has been made worthy of that sacrifice through their testimony. You see, their position before God serves as our assurance in our life, and as our strength and confidence, God is faithful and true. He is the one who rewards his saints, and he is the one who vindicates his righteousness. Christ follower, your life today is neither wasted nor disregarded when you deny yourself to take up your cross daily and follow Jesus Christ. There's not one moment of sacrifice you may have to endure. There is not one step of obedience that you will take that God will forget, that he will dismiss, or in any way neglect to regard. He is faithful and true to his word, and his word tells us he will honor the lives of those who trust in him. And that's what these testimonies are crying out to us for today. Romans chapters 8. Verses 35 to 39 so often are quoted. I'm confident of this, that nothing can separate us from the love of God. But I fear too often they're quoted in trite cliche without without the, the weight of the eternal promise that they bring. Listen, Paul tells us in Romans 8 this, 
declaration that is demonstrated to us here in Revelation 6. Nothing will because nothing can separate us from the love of God in Jesus Christ. There will never be any amount of suffering that you may go through in this life for the name of Christ, even if you are slain for that name as a martyr. That will not pale in comparison to the glory you will receive from God. God does not forget you in your suffering nor your sacrifice. Be faithful to his word. Be faithful in your witness. He will receive you. He will reward you with the eternal blessings of his provision. Friends, it may seem like we are losing in this world, but that's a lie. Because there was a night when it seemed like Christ himself lost. But the only loser on that night was the one leading the charge to crucify him. For what looked like absolute total loss turned into the most beautiful picture of glory. The salvation of all who put their faith in him and what he has done for you. No matter how dark the day may seem, there is a dawn coming. You can hold true and faithful because he will prove worthy. To you, Our aim is not to win every argument or to prove God true in this world, friends. We are called to live true to his word and bear a faithful witness to his name because Jesus is worthy. Christian, the all-consuming aim of your life and faithfulness to his word and witness, is it the name of Jesus Christ? The way you go about your work, the way you relate in your family, the way you love other people, especially those that hate you. Is the name of Christ declared through your life, through your actions, through your lips, in every way. And rest assured, God not only hears their prayers, but he answers the prayers of the saints. Look at verses 12 through 17. I want to read these. When he opened the sixth seal, verse 12, I looked and behold, (coughs) excuse me, there was a great earthquake. And the sun became black as sackcloth, the full moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? Seal 6, friends, is the great day of wrath. It's when time runs out. It's when mercy is removed completely. Its scope and magnitude is far greater than anyone dare to comprehend because the reader is immediately struck, surely even as John was, by the involvement not just of the people but the whole creation. And we are reminded as Paul instruction that all creation groans together in the pains of childbirth, like the pains of childbirth, for God to vindicate his righteousness and for the freedom of his children. Even as Christ was crucified on the cross, day turned to night. Creation was crying out, vindicate your holiness, God. Show your righteousness and your justice. Make things right. 
Well, I'll tell you, there's nothing like unstable weather patterns to remind us how small we are, are there? Some of you have heard me tell this story before, but in the spring of 1995, Kristen and I were living in Texas. We were in seminary, and one Friday night, because we didn't have kids, we could do whatever we wanted to, but we thought we were busy. One Friday night, we got in the car with a, a couple friend of ours, and we drove downtown where all the cool kids hang out. We wanted to see what they did. And about the time we got near downtown, we, we had to pull in. We were riding with the other couple, and we pulled in to get gas under one of the overhangs and the culverts. And it had been raining, and we knew that there was going to be a storm. And in the springtime in Texas, you just never really know exactly what that means. But as we pulled in, he stepped out to get gas, and, and the hail began to fall. And it immediately went from this dime size to nickel to quarter size to golf ball size. And it jumped all the way. And folks, this is not preacherized hyperbole. I'm telling you, we saw hail fall from the sky that night that was the size of large cantaloupes. Large balls of hail being shot out of a cannon straight down. Such that when we pulled into the gas station, another full-size Chevrolet pickup extended cab pulled in on the other side of the island from us. And he pulled through to line up his gas tank with the the gas uh, pump. And he was extended out beyond the covering. And in less than a minute, when the hail began to fall, we watched that perfectly formed truck be completely flattened. He reached in to grab something out of it, and hail came through the windshield. And he jumped back and ran back inside. And literally, the cab of that truck went flat from the hail hitting it. The power of the hail, it seemed like it lasted for years. It probably only lasted a few minutes. It absolutely covered the ground. You couldn't hardly drive like it was covered in ice. And and we decided at that instant, you know, maybe we ought to go home. Maybe the cool kids can have it tonight. That night, the destruction from that storm was so severe. We had three walkovers downtown in Fort Worth at the hospital district, like we have on South National here, all three of them, the glass was completely destroyed and it bent the structural steel. That's how heavy the hail was coming down. We had friends who lived on the west side of Fort Worth in a three-story apartment complex and they lived on the second floor, but just above their apartment on the third floor, the hail came through the roof into the living room of the apartment itself. That'll make you feel really small in life. So we made the wise decision, hey, we're going to go to this place, and this also dates me. There used to be these stores called Blockbuster. Before you could pick up uh, any movie you wanted on your TV at home, you had to go get a movie, and it was on what we called a VHS tape. I don't have time to explain all of it to you. We just decided we'd go to Blockbuster. And so when we go to Blockbuster, you remember how those things were built, right? Three sides of nothing but glass. You could see through, you could see in, you could see out, you could see everything in Blockbuster. And about the time we got there, we pulled up, we parked, it had stopped hailing, we ran in, we're laughing about it, and somebody yells, a tornado's coming down the road! And no joke, right down the main street where Blockbuster was, was a tornado. And I said, we gotta hide! Glass, glass, glass! We gotta hide! So we just hit the floor, waited about four minutes until it all passed. Fortunately, none of the glass shattered, and we got in the car without a VHS, and we went home. 
Natural calamity has a way of making you feel really small. You know, I don't know everything John saw in his vision. But the description alone is terrifying. And I can tell you this, and you need to hear this. You need to hear the testimony of the people who were there when it happened. They ran for the hills. They were begging the rocks to kill them. So, and listen to this, so they wouldn't have to face the one who was causing it. Did you catch that? Whether these phenomena are literal or metaphorical, that remains to be seen. But unmistakably, its effects on the hearers were terrifying. Six categories of people are identified here. Kings of the earth, those enthroned and in power, the great ones, whatever greatness means, however it's measured, the generals, the powerful ones, the rich and the powerful, and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks. And they cried out to the rocks, kill us. We don't want to have to face him. That's the t- Sometimes in the scriptures you need to listen to the testimony of the people that aren't following Jesus. Because they'll tell you something too. They'll tell you what it's like. And that's what they do for us here. All who rejected Christ had the same prayer. Kill us. Kill us. But friends, I've got some worse news than death. Not even death will save you from facing God and answering for your life to him. You will face God. And you will either be hidden with him in Christ. Or you will be laid bare in your own wickedness and evil sinful nature. The third truth I want you to understand today is this. God's judgment is real and terrifying beyond comprehension. But all who are hidden with God in Christ will not face it will not face it. You may suffer persecution and some will be slain as martyrs, but you will not be touched by the wrath of God's in judgment. Why? Because Christ has already consumed the wrath of God for us on the cross. That's why. The reason Christ died was he took our punishment that was ours and he gave us his righteousness. When God looks upon the life of one who is hidden in Christ, he does not see sin. He sees a blood-washed life robed in white. You will not fall under God's judgment because Christ willingly bore that punishment for you. God's mercy and grace that is sufficient for salvation, hear me friends, is also sufficient for suffering and persecution. Do not give up. What you are under today may be as severe as you've ever felt it to be under. But I promise you, if you will hold to Christ, you will find that he is holding you. And he is sufficient for whatever you're going through now and whatever you may have to endure on that day. What we may suffer will only be temporal. And it will not compare to the glory that awaits us in Jesus Christ. Therefore, fix your hope, not on a planned escape route, but on the one in whom our eternal hope rests, Jesus Christ. When those who have rejected Jesus are crying out to the rocks, begging to be killed by them, those who trust in Jesus will be resting underneath the rock of ages. See that for your life. Which rock are you crying out to? Which rock are you running into today, friends? You may have remained neutral until now. You cannot remain neutral forever. Trust in Jesus. He is the rock who stands unmoved. And guard in you 
or guard you in the day of God's wrath. Chapter 7 provides an interlude for us, which features a single vision showing the situation of the people of God, but from two different perspectives. I need us to look at this briefly so that we can see the full measure of the seals. In verses 1 through 8, we see the 144,000 that are sealed. Verse 1, four angels stand at the corners of the earth, and that represents the whole of creation. They prevent ultimate destruction by holding back the winds because another angel ascends and it says this, from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God and he called out with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm earth and sea saying, do not harm the earth or the seas or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. You see, John sees those who are provided a seal that guards them from the ultimate destruction that will come on the great day of wrath. And that number, 144,000, is derived from the 12 tribes of Israel, multiplied by 12,000 from each tribe, multiplied by 1,000. You see, the most important aspect is that the calculation of 144,000 represents completeness and wholeness. In other words, there's no one who is sealed with God who will be forsaken by God. Hear this, see this. This is not literal Israel, and there are a number of textual indicators that tell us why. This is rather true Israel. It represents the true people of God, the whole of the redeemed. And what is most important is that by the angel's decree, this group is protected from all harm in all of the destruction because they are sealed by God. And this brings us to truth number four. God guards Christ's followers from his judgment because we have been sealed with the Holy Spirit. He guards Christ's followers from his judgment because we've been sealed with the Holy Spirit. While we know that we may and surely will suffer persecution because of our faithfulness to God, we will not be harmed in judgment because we've been sealed by God. He seals us, and that means he authenticates our identification with him. In other words, there with me. We not only know God, he knows us. Because we wear his seal. We are protected because we are his. He owns us as Revelation has already told us. Because he ransomed us with the blood of Jesus. And he purchased us. And and, and we have to ask what is this seal that authenticates our identity with God? But the Holy Spirit of God, Ephesians chapter 1, 13 and 14 tells us, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Ephesians 4 Verse 30 goes on to remind us that it is by the Spirit we are sealed for the day of redemption. This of which we read in Revelation 7, friends, is that day. It is that day in which God's seal set on us protects us because we are His. And so I ask you this morning, has the Spirit of God sealed you as God's? Are you living under some kind of other understanding? There's only one seal 
that will save you in the day of God's wrath. And that's His Holy Spirit being set upon you. Do you know Him? And then verses seven or verses uh, one through eight of chapter seven tell us that we're protected and prepared for battle. The verses nine through seventeen tell us that we're also weaponized with praise. The fifth truth I want you to see from verses 9 through 17 where we see a great multitude that is identified from every nation, tribe, people, and language. They're clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hand and they are crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. They are joining with the very throne room of heaven as one Voice. Look at truth number five. God's people will worship at his throne victorious over tribulation by Jesus' resurrection power. You see, this part of the vision reveals the church triumphant, praising God in heaven. And those who were sealed in the first half of the chapter have now joined as one voice with the throne room of heaven. They're not like the voice of heaven. They're not similar to, comparable to, or they come along well with. They are as one. There is a unity in all of these things. Their worship is combined with the worship of heaven's throne room as one voice. Who are these? These are those who have come through the great tribulation, the angel responds. They've had their robes washed and made white by the blood of Jesus, and they have entered in to enjoy the presence of the Almighty for all eternity. God's people, sealed by the Spirit of God, will join with the very throne room of heaven, and we will worship as one. We will belong there because He put us there. And our voice will declare the praise of the one who is worthy. We've been protected. We've been provided. And friends, I tell you, because of the Spirit of God, we've been weaponized with praise to make high the name of Jesus Christ among all the nations. I was in Kansas City on Wednesday for a meeting. That was a dumb decision. As I prepared to drive home, I was up on the north side, almost to the airport, and a little further to the east than to the west, or that would have made the decision a lot easier. But, I mean, every news channel was talking about it. And there was evidently a gathering of about a half million crazies right downtown Kansas City. That's, I'm just describing it the way the news, or the way I heard it anyway. Knowing that my normal path would take me right down through the chaos where police were already uh, towing cars because some people just stopped right there on the interstate, left their car, and walked over to the parade. That's him like, oh yeah, that's going to work really well. You just leave her right here. Why don't you leave the keys and I'll take it for you. Have you ever tried to drive from the north side to the south side of Kansas City on the east side? There is no direct route. I mean, I'm begging Google to help. Find me another road, Google, find me another road. I drove well out of my way to avoid the craziness at all costs. When I read of this multitude celebration in heaven... I'm also taking another distinctive route for life. And I implore each and every one of you to do the same. By God's seal, my life is protected and prepared for battle. And it's weaponized with praise. And so is yours. If the Spirit of God has regenerated you. By God's seal, I'm attending all the faculties and the affections of my life to walk as directly into the celebration of Revelation 7 as absolutely possible. I implore you to do the same thing by the Word of God and the light of His Spirit. Philippians 3.10, 
Paul says and prays that he might know the power of Jesus' resurrection and share in his suffering so that, so that one day he might experience his resurrection power. Friends, I want you to know this is the day of resurrection power. When God saves because he sealed you in the midst of casting judgment on all of those who have rejected him. You will not be touched, but you will be brought into the chorus of magnifying the name of Jesus who alone is worthy. Jesus is sovereign who executes judgment for sin but seals for eternal salvation those who trust in him. Let's pray.